A couple nights ago, Corey and I had laid our four kids down for bed, and we uh, went to bed ourselves, and we laid down in the bed, and we have a television in our room, and sometimes what we like to do is just kind of turn on and watch whatever a show is that we want to watch that night. If there's nothing on, we might watch a show on Netflix or something, and that's kind of just us. It's almost like our respite time, you know, there's four kids, and now they're, you know, conked out because we gave them Benadryl or something, and so I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding honestly, unless it's a weeknight. But so we would give them something. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, they would be asleep. And so we're just watching something and we're laying there beside one another and we're probably talking and we're watching the show or whatever. And Corey did what she has done from time to time. Uh, I think it started maybe with one of the pregnancies and, you know, maybe her feet got sore, they got tired. And so she didn't so much ask me, hey, will you rub my feet? She just did, you know, what any loving wife would do who knows that her husband loves you. She just kind of rolled away from me and then just kind of stuck her feet near me a little bit. Like she didn't even say anything. She just kind of rolled away and then just kicked her feet up. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's weird that she's way over there now. And then like evidently I didn't respond affirmatively enough. And so now her feet kind of like touch my leg. I'm like, oh, all right. And then her feet, like, make their way to my hand. Like, my hands were, I was like, oh, you know, now her foot is, like, in my hands. And so, I, at this point, like, I'm pretty dumb, but at this point, I've kind of figured it out. And I was like, babe, do you want me to, you want me to massage your feet? She was like, oh, that would be wonderful. My feet are so, they're so sore, they're so tired. And so, I'm watching TV, and, and I don't know how every guy in the room is, but, like, I don't have the ability to do more than one thing at a time. And so, like, trying to watch television and massage the spot on her foot that was hurting, I didn't have that ability to do both. And so, like, I would be massaging, and then something great would happen in the show, and I'd be like, and, like, my thumb stopped working. And I'm, like, watching the show, and she'd be like, babe, babe. And I'd be, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then I'd be doing that order. And so, evidently, my distraction was not kind of doing what she needed to do on that spot. And so she... She got up and she went to the bathroom and she got like this little tiny bottle of like lotion. And I I don't remember the exact smell, but it was like vanilla, strawberry, bean, strongest scent ever. I'm not really sure. And so she brought that back and she was like, hey, do you mind just using a little lotion? I mean, just that one. I'm I'm so sore. And I was like, all right. So I take it and I open the lid and I put it in my hands. I rub my hands, you know, and then I start massaging her feet again. And evidently that helped do the trick because evidently I was doing a better job. And so she's like, oh, that feels so good. Thank you so much. And so I thought, okay, I'm done because that one spot on her foot is better now. And so she moves that foot back over and then she does some kind of gymnastic move. I'm not even sure like my body bends this way. And now the other foot came around and it ended up in my hands. And so I was like, oh, you, you mean to massage the other foot too? And she's like, oh, that would be so great. And I was like, oh, okay. But now I have figured out, because I'm smart, that we're going to start with lotion. So I open the lotion up again. I start massaging the foot. And, and, and with the vanilla bean, strongest scent ever, strawberry, raspberry thingamajig that I've got in my hand. And so I'm massaging and we get done. She was like, thank you so much. That, is, you, that was awesome. I was like, you're so welcome. Because I'm an awesome husband, and I take the lotion bottle, and I pop it down, and I put it over on the nightstand. The next day, I got up, and I took a shower, and I used soap, because that's what I do on Tuesdays. And so, I mean, other days too, but Tuesday, I use soap. So I put soap, different soap. It was not raw, strawberry, raspberry, vanilla bean, 
strongest scent ever. And so I put soap on my hand and I washed off and I got done and I washed my hair. And, and so like I put shampoo that smells different than the vanilla bean, strawberry, raspberry, strongest scent ever. And I washed my hair and I got done. And throughout the day, because I do this, like I washed my hands several times with soap and it was awesome. And so at the end of the day, like I kept smelling something. I was like, what is that? And it dawned on me. That is vanilla bean strongest scent ever. It's in my pores. Like it has gotten to the bones of my hand. I cannot get this smell off of me. And here's, that was like a couple days ago. And this morning driving to church, because I knew that I was opening with this, I kind of went like this and I can still smell it. I'm not sure that it, the FDA has approved this lotion because I think that it is concentrated to much too high of a degree. But the power of smell is something amazing. Like, I don't know, scientists tell us that smell is actually the most powerful scent that we have because you hear something and it might jog a memory. You see something and it might jog a memory. But if you smell something, you have a higher percentage to be taken back to the exact moment that you smelled it for the first time. And I don't know what that smell is for you, but let me just tell you right now in this moment, I can recreate by the power of my mind the char grill smell of Burger King that when I drive by a Burger King, I don't know if I have one of those new Google cars or what, but my car just naturally pulls in. I, I don't even have control of the automobile anymore. There's something about that smell that just does something to my son. I don't know what that smell is for you, but the power of smell, scientists tell us, is the most powerful thing, the most powerful sense that we have with all the senses that we have with our body. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about the power of smell. I don't know what Matt said we're talking about, but we're going to talk about the power of smell. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. If you've got a Bible with me, you can flip there, Luke 7. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a smartphone or an app, you can flip to, to Luke 7 there. And if you don't have something like that, most of these scriptures today will be up on the screen. We're going to begin reading in just a minute in verse 36, and we're going to read a story uh, for about 10 or 12 verses there in Luke 7, verse 36. This is a story uh, about Jesus and an interaction that he had with someone. And many of you may know this story. You may have heard this story in different ways. Uh, but we're going to read here in Luke 7, beginning in verse 36, and this is what it says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So he's, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, this Pharisee, who later we're going to learn his name is Simon. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now I love the description of the setting that we get here from the writer Luke, because what he's doing is he's setting for us this story. We don't know it, but he's actually setting us up. He is helping for us to, to kind of set the scene about what's happening in this house. So, say, so Simon the Pharisee uh, has invited Jesus to come to his house. Maybe you're familiar with Pharisees. Maybe you know what they are. We read about them a lot in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. And if you read history books, you understand, at least in the time of Jesus, the important role that they played within some of the culture there. The Pharisees were one of the parties that really helped to kind of condemn Christ to the cross along with some other folks. But Pharisees were really these kind of 
of really religious people. They also made up a small portion of a political party. So they had some, some kind of some backing. They had some money sometimes, but they weren't the most affluent people in the community. Um, but primarily, these were religious folks. They were kind of your ordinary, regular church attender. Like, they're coming pretty regular. They bring, the, you know, they bring their copy of the Bible. Um, they're in Sunday school. They actually got a perfect attendance ribbon last year, and they're really excited about that. It's hanging on their fridge in their living room there. And so, like, they're really excited to let you know that they know how to keep the law. They know how to keep all the commands and all the things that Jesus wants you to keep. And so these are these kind of people. And so Simon the Pharisee, you know, he knows Jesus. He's seen the ministry of Jesus. He knows that he's kind of an important rabbi. He's an important teacher. He's doing some miracles. He's claiming to be the son of God. And so he invites Jesus to come into his home. And now, interestingly to me, Jesus is most often referred to as someone who would sit with tax collectors and sinners, and people would get really upset about that. But we also see that he was hanging out with church folks. And so Jesus is in the home of Simon the Pharisee. And, and just let me set that scene a little bit more for you. The table would not have been like a table like this where you're sitting at a chair near that table. I don't know if you've seen the, the picture, the painting of the Last Supper where it appears they're all sitting in like high back chairs. That's not how that scene would have gone. The table would have been very low to the ground, if not on the ground. It would have been all the way down. And everyone who came in would have removed their shoes at the door. They would have washed their feet um, they probably would have taken kind of a lotion or an ointment of some kind. They would have, you know, kind of washed their beard, washed their hair from the dust that they had acquired while they were traveling. They would have made sure that their hands were clean. They would have walked in. They would have greeted one another with a holy kiss, kind of kissed on the cheek. Think kind of French guys walking into a room together, if that kind of helps you set the scene there. They would walk in. They would do that. And then they would all find their seat around the table, but they would sit on the floor, and so, you know, if the table's in front of you, you wouldn't put your dirty feet up near the table. So what you would do is you would kind of sit down. I'm not going to reenact it because I probably wouldn't get up without splitting my pants. But we would sit down and we would kind of put our knees near the table and maybe lean to the side and our feet would be back behind us. And so this is the scene of the people seated around this table with Simon the Pharisee. I, I assume some other Pharisees that are a part of maybe his church, his small group. And so that's the people that are sitting around, and then there's Jesus. And then in that room, it would have been kind of in one of the outer rooms of Simon's house, there would have been a, a larger group of people that weren't seated at the table. So if the table's this rug, I don't know if you can see that, there's a rug here kind of where my table's at. And they would have just kind of been standing around the edge of the room. And so these other people would have just been standing around there. That wasn't just something uh, because Jesus was there. This was something that would have happened if they were having a community meal or supper together. And so this lady, we are told, comes in. She hears that Jesus is reclining at the table. All that means is that he's seated and his feet are behind him and he's kind of leaned back. And she hears that Jesus is there. So she comes in and if he's sitting here, she just steps in behind Jesus. So remember what we've just said. Jesus is sitting at the table. His feet are back behind him and she is sitting or standing behind him. So his feet would have been right underneath her. And in that moment, she realizes that this is Jesus. We're going to learn why that's important to her in just a minute. And she starts crying. I mean, not like her eyes get a little wet. Like, it's the ugly cry. I mean, it's, it's just like she starts crying. She can't control it. Now she's weeping. Tears are literally dripping off of her face. And they are landing on the feet of Jesus because his feet were kind of laid back. The, the, when I used to read this, I would think, how did she, did she make him turn around? Like, I don't, but his feet are behind. And so her tears are just falling down on his feet. 
And so now I'm assuming at this point conversation has stopped because she's sobbing. And so she leans down. His feet are all the way on the floor. She leans down with her hair, which I don't have enough of to demonstrate. She takes that hair and she gets down low enough where she can take that hair on her head and wipe the tears off of his feet. And then she takes what we didn't know except for the writer telling us, but other people would have immediately found out. She takes this box of alabaster ointment and she opens that box. Some translations talk about her breaking a box or some of the other uh, stories that are similar here. There's a breaking there, but she takes the ointment out of that box. It would have been an expensive, it would have been almost like this vanilla bean, raspberry straw, like very strong scent. She opens that and now the tears have been wiped away with her hair. Now she takes the alabaster and she begins... She takes the ointment and she begins to anoint his feet, rub this onto his feet. Now, in our culture today, this probably would have made everybody in the room uncomfortable. But in that day and time, with the interaction between men and women, I'm assuming everybody in the room was uncomfortable. Like, this is not something like, oh, neat, look what she's doing. She's bringing Jesus a gift, and we don't have a gift. It's like she is laying on the ground, kissing his feet. And when you read it like that, you go, man, what in the world did the other people in the room do? Well, all that we know is what Simon said to himself. We don't even know what other people were saying or thinking. And we don't know how, long Simon, how loud Simon said this. Maybe he just thought it. But it says to us in verse 39 that Simon thought to himself or said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what and who or who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, interestingly, we already referenced the fact that she was a sinner Way back up there in verse 37. But something happens here that in the English, I'm not sure if we would fully grasp. But if you go all the way back to the original language, in verse 37, we see from the writer Luke, we see that he says that this woman was a sinner. Now, in our language, this could mean one of two things. It could mean that she was in the past tense a sinner, or it could be the way that he's describing her because he's retelling this story later in life. This is not an actual, like he's recording it while this is taking place. He's writing this down later. So he could have been saying she was a sinner in the moment that this took place. And so I'm telling you that way back there, that woman that was in the room was a sinner. But the original word that he used here was not that she was in that moment a sinner, and he's telling us about it later. That word means that in this moment she was a sinner. She used to be a sinner, past tense. Then Simon thinks to himself out loud, if Jesus were a prophet, if he knew who this woman actually was, he would know that she is a sinner. It's a different word. It's actually a present tense indicative word there that means that in this present moment, she's a sinner. Now, here's the difference. I don't want to speak for everybody in the room, but all of us at some time in our life have a was and we have an is. And a lot of times people try to to take our is and make it our was. Now, I'm going to help unpack this because some of you are not tracking with me right now. I got, you're staring at me like, what? She knew that she used to be something. Simon was still trying to make her that thing now. I don't know what you used to be. 
I don't know what your was was. Like, I don't know what your story, like, I don't know when you walk into this church and you see someone that used to go to high school with you in this school, I don't know what you assume they're thinking when they look at you and they go, wow, I can't believe he would show up here. I remember what he was when he attended here with me. Maybe you walk into a restaurant and somebody looks at you and you go, man, I I hope that they're not calling me by my was. I hope they're giving God credit for my is. Right? Because what happens is that Luke tells us that she was, she used to be. In the New Testament, the word that Luke uses to describe her is used 400 times, and all of them are past tense. Every single time, it was was, it was were, or it was used to be. All 400 times. But the word that Simon used, it's also used in the New Testament. It's used 800 times, and every single time, it's a present tense word. Every single time. And so now you have Jesus allowing this woman who was something bad to do something in the moment that makes everyone uncomfortable because they refuse to see her as she is, only as she was. In our culture, in our society, And heaven help us, the worst of it is usually in our church. We cannot allow people to be there is. We continually make them there was. I mean, every single time we see someone who used to be something, we assume that's what they still are because surely people can't change. This woman, according to all the things that you would read and according to even some of the undertone of what Simon's describing, she was a woman, I'll just clean it up and say she was a woman of ill repute in that town. Everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew what she did. Everybody assumed they knew how she got the money to pay for the ointment because they knew what she was. And they, like us, assumed that people don't really change. And so they would not give her credit or even Jesus credit for what she is. But now I think you understand why when she's standing behind Jesus and she sees this man who I guess at some previous point in their interaction looked at her and saw her as she is and not as she was, you can see why she began to cry. It could be that he's the only one who looks at her this way. People don't change, do they? I mean, people don't really change, except when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, when it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. People don't change. God changes people. No one on their own can go from was to is, no matter how much they try. But in a moment, God can make your was a brand new is. And I'm not trying to hang here because it's neat to say that. (laughs) I'm just telling you that some of us have never gotten past that. Personally, or in the way that we score people. And yet Jesus did not rebuke her. Jesus did not call her down. Jesus did not stop her from what she was wanting to do. She leans down in the floor. She takes her hair. 
She wipes the tears. She takes the ointment. She anoints his feet. And then Jesus knows what Simon has said to himself. It's the really cool part about being 100% God and 100% man. I wish I had that ability. And so Jesus begins answering Simon in verse 40 of Luke chapter 7. Look at what he says. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, when I hear denarii or when I used to hear denarii, for whatever reason, because it sounded like it, I used to think dollar. So one guy owed 50 bucks, one guy owed 500 bucks. It's like, I don't know, have a yard sale, pay it off. But a denarii would have been a day's wages, give or take. So I'm just going to pull it into present-day context because I don't fully know that we would all understand the day's wages and the cost of everything. But just in today's wages, if we just take like kind of a, a bare level number, uh, amount of money, and I'm not saying if you make less than this that you're terrible or if you make way more than this that you're rich. We're just going to take $26,000 a year. The reason I'm going to do that is because there's 52 weeks in a year and 26 is easily dividable, divisible into 56. I said dividable. That's okay. So $26,000 a year. So what that amounts to per day is about $71 a day. So what we have here is that a denarii in present culture would be somewhere maybe around $71 a day. So here's what you know. One guy owes the debt collector $3,500. He had a medical procedure at some point in his past, and there's just this outstanding bill. He owes $3,500. Another guy owes 500 denarii. He actually owes more than he makes in an entire year. He owes $3,500 thousand dollars to the debt collector. This is like student loans, credit cards. Like this is a, a, an auto loan that was kind of an impulse buy. And now the car doesn't even work. You don't even know where the car's at, what state it lives in. And now you still owe like six grand on a car that looked amazing. It smelled awesome, wouldn't run for anything. And so now you've got $35,000 in debt. This other guy standing beside you has $3,500 in debt. You would change places with him tomorrow. But the same debt collector who keeps burning your phone up, man, he's calling you all the time. He's like, hey, this is Jeremy from DebtCollectorServices.com, and hey, we're just calling to see if you want to start paying, you know, $25 a week to work off that $35,000. And you're like, yeah, sure, I'm planning to live to $900, so I'll pay $2,500 or $25 a week, absolutely. And so you're just like, I'm never going to get out of this thing. And then one day, Jeremy from DebtServiceCollectors.com calls you and says, you know what we've done? We were looking at the books here, and we've had a good year. We've made a lot of money. We're just going to cancel your debt. Guy for $3,500, medical procedure, he gets the same phone call. You know, we're, gonna, we're just going to cancel your debt. And then Jesus asks this question that unless you fully realize what Jesus is trying to do, what point he's trying to make, you might miss the significance of the wording that Jesus used. Jesus does not say to Simon, which of those guys do you think would be most thankful? He says, Simon, which of those guys do you think would love more? And Simon answers the question because he's assuming it's not a trick question. And so he's like, well, I suppose that's kind of that justification just in case he gets it wrong. He says, well, I suppose it would be the one who had the largest debt. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. And then Jesus just gets all up in Simon's business. Because for the next few verses, here's what he does. He says, Simon, I walked into your house. You didn't kiss me on the cheek. But she kissed my feet. 
You didn't give me a basin of water to wash my feet off because I was unclean from walking down the road to get to your house. And here I am seated on the floor about to eat a meal. And you did not give me the common decency to give me a bowl of water so that I could just wash my feet off. But she has used her tears and her hair to make sure that my feet were clean. And Simon, you you didn't anoint my head. You didn't give me a lotion to make sure that the sun, which has kind of dried out my skin and the dirt, and to, to anoint my hair and to anoint my beard. You didn't do that, but she took something very precious to her. And she's anointed me herself. And he begins to help all of us see that there is a difference in the way that we respond to Jesus. There's a difference. Because it's not enough to sit in the room where Jesus is at. You don't get his attention that way. Because it's not like, oh, I'm thankful. It's almost Thanksgiving. I mean, everybody on my Facebook timeline is like, hey, it's day eight. I'm thankful for the number eight. I don't know what they're thankful for, but it's a lot of different stuff. That's not enough. He doesn't say like, okay, hey, you have been forgiven much, so be thankful. He said, no, no, no. If you've been forgiven much, then you love much. It's not enough to sit in the room with Jesus and have a conversation. He said, no, 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 I, I want you to be shaped by the act of forgiveness that I have expressed toward you. As the band prepares to come here, I, I want to say this to you. What we see in this story from this woman is that the forgiveness that she received produced the worship that she gave. The forgiveness that she received produced the worship that she gave. And I think that's going to be up on the screen there. And I just want you to look at that. And I want you to ask yourself and search your own heart and go, wow, okay, well, what does my worship say about my forgiveness, if anything? And I realize there are people in the room that you've not entered into a relationship with Jesus. And you say, I, I mean, like, I've forgiven some people for things they've done to me, and they've forgiven me. But, like, if you're talking about, like, you know, Jesus be the Lord and Savior of my life, forgive me of my sins. I've never done that. So, like, the whole worship thing's still kind of a new thing to me anyway. So I don't really worship because I don't think I've been forgiven. Or maybe you don't put words to it like that. But for this moment, for the next 30 seconds, let me just speak to those who have been forgiven, those who have entered into relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus pointed to that woman in the face of someone who attended church and said, she gets it and you don't. And when I read that story, I'm left to go, what if I misunderstood worship? What if I've misunderstood forgiveness. I'm not talking about a specific response. I'm not saying every time we come in, we all have to take our shoes off and cry on the person in front of us and then get down and wipe our hair. I'm not saying you've got to do that. I'm not saying when you come next week, you got to bring lotion with you and, you know, anoint the person's head in front. I'm, I'm not talking about a specific response. I'm talking about the heart of worship that you possess specifically related to the forgiveness that you've received. Jesus looked at Simon and said, she has loved much because she has been forgiven much. And sometimes we forget, don't we? You ever been around someone who recently made a decision for Jesus Christ? Like recently prayed the sinner's prayer, recently accepted Christ. Like they are so excited 
about everything. It's like they're reading their Bible, and they read, and they're like, did you know this was in here? This is unbelievable. Or they're like, I was praying the other day, and I really feel like God heard me. And you're like, well, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of what he does, right? Or they show up to church, and they're like, can you believe that we get to come into a high school every week? Can you believe that someone gave to us 40 acres of property, over a million dollars, because they believed that God had a future for us? Can you believe we're, we're building out a space? Like, people are going to come in that need to hear Jesus Christ as the Savior of their sin. Like, can you believe we get to do this? But some of us, and I'm guilty of this, we walk in and we go, oh, we got to set it up again. When it's over, we got to tear it down again. Man, when are we going to get in the new space? Like, couldn't God have just given us a building that was already built out? Like, couldn't God have, like, man. Like, yeah, I mean, I want to read my Bible, but I got a lot going on today. I got to change my fantasy lineup, and football's coming on. There's a dinner thing. And sometimes we miss the point because we forget about forgiveness. The power of gratitude is not just about being thankful. The power of gratitude prompts a response from me because I remember what I was and that he made me something new. So I have two questions for us as we leave today. And one of them is based on this idea that everybody in the room saw this woman and Jesus. Like everybody in the room smelled the ointment. Everybody saw it. They were uncomfortable. They, they, I mean, like some people leaning around, standing around back here may have had to move so she could lay down to get her hair to his feet. Other people may have gotten tears on them. I, I don't know. But like other people experienced it. They saw it. They watched it. They were in the moment. But the next day, only two of them carried any effect of the moment. And it was the two people that still smelled like vanilla bean, raspberry, strawberry, smelliest lotion ever. Because the day after, I smell my hands. I go, man, I can't believe this stinks like this. But I remember doing it because I loved my wife. It's like I can get over it smelling for, I mean, now four days. But because there was a moment that I'm joking about. But I don't want anybody else to rub her feet. You get, I realize some of you, you're like uncomfortable. Like, Jeremy, just move on here. We get it. That's my job. Well, guess what? Whose job is it to worship God for you? Like, whose job is it to sing when the worship leader says, sing about the love of God? Like, is it somebody else's job? Or are you supposed to just kind of get in it? And read the words off the screen and try to make those the words of your heart and lift your hands, even if it makes you uncomfortable. Because tomorrow, you want to be different because of the moment today. Like you hope that there's some way that tomorrow you smell differently because you've had a moment with Jesus today. So here's the first question. What will you carry with you tomorrow because you've been with Jesus today? Like other than it being a little hot in here this morning and we're all a little bit sweaty and stinky, hopefully you'll shower before tomorrow. But what will you be like tomorrow? What will you carry with you into Monday because you met with Jesus on Sunday? 
everybody in the room saw it, but only two people were affected by it. And here's the second question. If all I could go on was your worship, what would it tell me about your forgiveness? Like if I'm standing in the room and I'm looking at Simon at the head of the table and I'm looking at this woman laying down on the ground kissing his feet, I would assume she loves him more than Simon does. And again, I'm not asking for specific response. I'm not asking you to like roll around on the floor and do all kinds of crazy things. But I'm saying if all I have to go on is your worship unto God, what would it tell me about your forgiveness from God? What would it say to me about what you is instead of what you was, right? So we're going to pray today. We're going to pray for two things. One, if you're in the room and you say, I've never been forgiven by God. Like, I, I've never received the forgiveness of God in my life. And so, like, my worship is clearly affected by the fact that I have not responded to him out of a heart of forgiveness and thankfulness and out of the love that he describes. And so I want to be forgiven today. And I want to say to him, God, I need you to forgive me. I, I was something and I want to be something new. I want to be that new creation. That's going to be the first group. And then the second group is us that say, like, I've been forgiven, but I'm not sure that my worship reflects my forgiveness. I'm not sure that my worship reflects the love that I have for him because of what he did for me. Scripture tells us we love him because he first loved us. And I'm not sure sometimes that my love towards him reflects the love that he has shown towards me. And so now with every head bowed, and every eye in the room closed with nobody looking around as you would just kind of search your heart to determine where you land. Are you someone who needs forgiveness? Or are you someone who needs to worship in response to forgiveness? If you would say to me, Jeremy, like, I've never been forgiven by God. And today I want to make sure that I say to him, God, forgive me. I was something. And people still think I am that thing. God, help me to be something new. I want to be a new creation. I don't want to be known anymore by what I was. God, I want to be known by what I am now. And so I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And today I want to change my identity and the label by which people know me. If you would just lift your hand right where you're at. Nobody's looking around. You can put it right back down. If you would say, that's me today, I want to be forgiven. And now if you would say to me today, Jeremy, I've been forgiven, but I want to make sure that my worship is always a reflection of the gratitude of my heart, the love out of my heart because of what Christ did did for me on the cross, that he forgave my sins, that God was the one that transformed my heart and my life. And so I want to make sure that I'm always responding out of that kind of love. Would you just lift your hand? You can put it right back down. Tons of hands. Let's pray together. God, I thank you today for every person who lifted their hand. I thank you for every person today whose heart responds in some way to this idea that forgiveness produces response. You're the one who changes us. You're the one who does the work. But God, don't let us be comfortable trying to do the work on our own or being comfortable just being in the room where it happens. God, let us get involved. Let us make people uncomfortable if we have to. Because God, we wanna have an encounter with you. God, I pray today for every person who needs to be forgiven, who needs to accept you as the Lord and Savior of their life. 
God, and I pray secondarily for every person in this room that says, I want my worship to reflect the forgiveness that I've received. God, today we thank you that you're a God who forgives, that you're a God who changes our was into an is. And God, I pray that we as a church, we as a people refuse to fall into the trap of rating people only by what they used to be. God, let us believe that you make all things new. In Jesus' name I pray.